Let's pray. Lord, we thank you as we come to your word, um, a word of encouragement to us as we step forward into our new phase or your new phase of the work here. Um, and Lord, we're very mindful of your mercies to us over these months, year and a half, really, two years coming up to um, when, Lord, we've known trials of certain kinds, which were referred to <laughs> in general in that passage from James. And we pray, Lord, for those in undergoing trials at the present time. Particularly, we pray for the situation in Afghanistan. And uh, we do feel a sense of shame that uh, that job really wasn't finished. And we humble ourselves and our nation and the, for the nation of the United States as well. I pray you'll protect those who are your people there and protect those who've been loyal to the previous regime. Uh, have your hand of restraint upon the Taliban. Pray too for those in Tennessee who are, uh, I think it is, uh, having floods um, this time and loss of life, and uh, we commend them to you. And uh, Lord, we realize that in this world there will be tribulation. But Jesus said, Fear not, I have overcome the world. So be with us now as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. These past weeks, um, when I've not been doing it, a series, as it were, talking through the word. Uh, nonetheless, it, I've had very clear sense from the Lord what's the right thing to do each time. Uh, I haven't really had any doubts, and I have no doubt what I want to say, say this morning. It's from Hebrews 11, about Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of the promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were both uh, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens upon the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been seeking, thinking of a land from which they'd come, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they just desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In verse 8 of that 
chapter we read this. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. Um, Becky usually comes in and has breakfast with me on a Sunday, which is nice, and she did this morning. Um, but she said, I want to do it next week, Dad. I said, well, you can come along to the breakfast. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> but uh, she has her own responsibilities. But anyway, so I said, um, she said, I must come a bit earlier today. I said, okay. I said, uh, what's she doing? I don't know, she said. We've got a couple of weeks off, so I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I said, all oh, right. Okay. So they're going out as a family, which is nice. I thought, well, she's out on an excursion, not knowing where she was going. I think she was going back and talk to Kevin. But um, Abraham was on a rather bigger uh, tour of duty, but he didn't know where he was going. So I thought we'd just look at that this morning, because obviously we're in a new phase, for which we thank God, but um, in one sense, we don't know where we're going. But you need to contextualize that, as Abraham did, because by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Now, let's just think about that for a minute. And again, you, you know, do interrupt me if it's helpful to you to do that, um, share, whatever. Um, as I reflected on that, uh, the Lord enabled me to reflect on it. I was thinking, well, he did know where he'd come from. Um, he did know where he was, he'd come from. Where had he come from? He'd come from Ur, of the Chaldees, which was actually a very, very civilized place. And we were talking 4,000 years ago, but it was um, um, well-to-do. It had it had a good water supply there, and drainage and things like that. I mean, it was um, a, a well-appointed city, the city of Ur. Um, and he was a, undoubtedly a rich man, a businessman, I presume, in Ur. I mean, a lot of stuff's been dug up from the city. Um, and, um, you know, we, we see him as this sort of wanderer in tents, as it were. But that wasn't his background in the slightest. He was a, I suppose, what we call a, a city gent for the city of Ur. That's where he'd come from. But he came out of there. Now, Ur is at the bottom of the uh, Mesopotamian region. Mesopotamia is the region, it means the middle between the rivers. The middle between the rivers uh, Euphrates and Tigris, that is. And uh, that's where Ur was, you are. Um, and um, that's how it's spelled. And he was, as I say, a rather important man there. Um, but he had to go and leave there. Now, some of you know what it is to leave one way of life for another. Well, it was a very different way of life. He went into he went into a nomadic life, living in a tent. He never had a house again, but he had to leave the city of Ur and uh, wander. But it wasn't aimless, because he was being led by God. But he didn't know exactly where he was going. He had some idea, but uh, once he got there, he still didn't really know. He he wandered in the uh, 
the land of Canaan. But God called him out of Ur, up north to a place called Haran, again in the Mesopotamian region. But that wasn't his place to stay. From there, he went uh, across the Jordan into what became known as Canaan. Now, life demands change. If God calls you, you go. And God called him. And it made it quite clear, Stephen makes it quite clear in his speech in Acts chapter 7, that God called him from the city of Ur to go out. But you know, it's interesting because um, Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, tells us a little bit more about him. And by and large, I think Josephus is quite reliable. And it doesn't simply say that he went out because God called him, but he was chucked out, thrown out of Ur. And for a very clear reason. What was that? He became a creationist. He taught creation. Josephus says he was the first person to teach creation. Not the sense of absolutely, because uh, um, obviously those before him had uh, taught it. But they'd lost it. They'd lost the plot. They'd become pagan. And um, there is, in, again, in Jewish sources, the tradition that, in fact, it was Noah himself and Shem who taught Noah as a young man about creation. If you do the maths, you find it does work. Uh, Noah lived a long time. So did Shem. Um, so he had a change. And that change happened, it would appear, in the city of Ur itself. He had a change of thinking, a metanoia, a change of mind. Now, again, according to Jewish tradition, but um, I don't see any reason particularly to doubt it, his father, Terah, T-E-R-A-H, was a sidekick to Nimrod. Now, Nimrod and Cush created paganism. Nimrod is the Heracles of um, Greek uh, mythology created a whole new way of worshipping. And that whole new way of worshipping cut out the true God. That's why the Greeks had no doctrine of creation. It all came out of chaos, as people believe today. It's interesting. Because um, if you forsake the true God, then you uh, get into the way of thinking of people today. In fact, um, when we start Romans, which God willing will start like, well, it's now next week, isn't it? I mean, it's, this is the first day of this week. Um, we'll see in chapter one how Paul refers to this, how they deliberately, deliberately rejected God as creator and uh, sought out idolatrous worship. Why did they do that? Because of control. Nimrod was the first, was first dictator. He wanted to control people, and they wanted it. They actually wanted that. And they went with him. And that's why they wouldn't move. God told them to spread out across the globe after the flood, but they didn't. They moved down from um, the mountains of Armenia, uh, south, and settled in Shinar, in the Babylonian area, which became Babylon. Um, and uh, Ur was down there eventually. The city was built. Cities were built. And, uh, of course, the Tower of Babel, they tried to build that down there. In that area, uh, to worship false gods. Well, Abraham was brought up with that. 
In fact, um, if you look into Joshua 24, uh, Joshua reminds the people of that. Our fathers worshipped false gods beyond the river. And our fathers refers to Abraham and his father. And beyond the river means the other side of the Euphrates, in other words, in the Mesopotamian region. So Abraham was brought up as a pagan worshipper. Did you know that? Very important. Because people are paganized today, and Abraham's the model of the believer coming out of that. And particularly, they worship the moon, Nanu. Uh, the worship of the moon. And when he went up to Haran, they still did that up there, too. They still worshiped the moon. It was still pagan up there. Um, but Abraham became a creationist. As I say, there's a tradition that he, he lived as a young man for a little while with uh, Noah and uh, Shem, and they taught him creation. There's a, a famous story which an opera has been made of in, in Israel, I know, of, of um, Terah, his father's workshop. His father made idols, according to this tradition, um, and he had 12 on display that he'd made in his workshop, different gods. And uh, Abraham wanted to find out whether this stuff was true. So he prayed to the sun, the S-U-N, that is, uh, nothing happened. So he thought he'd pray to the moon, and moon was the particular deity that uh, he was brought up to worship. He prayed and asked for something, and nothing happened. So he thought, well, it really doesn't work, being a pagan worshipper. Uh, and he, one day, the story goes, took a hatchet into his father's factory and hacked down all these gods, apart from one and stuck the hatchet in the hand of a uh, surviving god and was running away when his father caught him and was furious with him for doing such a thing. How, could you, how dare you do that? Oh, says Abraham, I didn't do it. No, he said, look, that god did it. He's got, got the hatchet in his hand. He did it. Not me. So his father said, don't be so stupid, boy. No way could he do that. He said, well, if he can't do it, why do you believe in him? <laughs> Great story. <laughs> so he became a creationist. Second, he became a believer in salvation. And that's, that's very important because the same model seems to, has to happen today. A lot of people think you can go straight to salvation and cut out creation and uh, stick with the pagan views, the, the kind of evolutionary views, and it doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. God is dishonored when he's not worshipped as the sovereign creator who created the whole universe, as he says himself, and wrote it down himself in six days. He wrote it down in the Ten Commandments. Now, God writes something down himself. He doesn't take kindly when people just ignore it and say it doesn't matter. We'll go on to the next bit. You don't mess around with God. So Abraham was straightened out on the doctrine of creation. But then, of course, he had to be straightened out on the doctrine of uh, how you get back to God. And, of course, if you read Genesis 
12 and 15 and so, so on, you find out how God revealed that. And it wasn't by worshipping false gods. It wasn't even by worshipping the true God by the things you do. Although he used to sacrifice as God told him the people to do. No, no, no. It was by grace. Now, God made a covenant with Abraham, of which there were two aspects to it. That his people, his descendants, through his son who was to be born, that was Isaac, would inherit the land. And, of course, that's happening now. They are still in the land, back in the land of um, Israel, but only partly. It's not, not the final uh, fulfillment of that. That will happen in the millennium. Um, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Hold on. That includes you and it includes me. How could that be? Well, you're going to have a seed, he says. And that seed is Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Galatians. Read Galatians. And in Jesus, all are blessed who believe. And we are we become the children of Abraham. Children of the promise, seed of Abraham, born of his spirit, and washed by the Lamb. Abraham was told, if you trust me, you'll be accounted righteous. You don't need to do anything. Believe me. And, of course, it was on the basis of what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And God made a covenant. But, you know, it was a very strange covenant he made. When he made a covenant in those days, you took a couple of an animal or a bird and sacrificed it. The way you did it, you cut it in half and put one each side, and both parties of the covenant walked through between the severed parts of the uh, birds or animal. When God came to do it, what did he do? He put Abraham to sleep. So Abraham couldn't walk through it, and he himself went through as a blazing pot, showing that he was going to do it all. Salvation is all his work. And that's why Paul calls it a testament, a will. In fact, the writers of the, uh, or the translators of the Septuagint chose that word. Dear Thake, a will. Unilaterally, God does everything in salvation. Now, that, a lot of people don't like that. They want to do something like Cain. They want to invent their own forms of worship and then bring it along and say, here's my offering. It doesn't work with God. He only makes the rules, and the rules are very simple. That you believe in his son, that he died for your sins. Hadn't happened yet in Abraham's day, but it was going to happen. And uh, when you believe and repent and believe the promise of God, you get justified, put right with God. Simple. Those two simple things about God, creation and redemption, both are finished. God completed them. He completed creation at the beginning. And we see it working out. In fact, he put a curse on it, so we just see it deteriorating now. And... On the cross, he finished salvation. Two works of God. 
Abraham believed them both. The gospel, Paul says in Galatians 3, was preached in advance to Abraham. So he came out of the world. He came to believe in creation and he came to believe the gospel. Amazing. What then? Well, in an ultimate sense, he knew where he was going. He was seeking a city with foundations. Whose builder and maker is God. And that's true of you and me. If you're a believer in Jesus, you know where you're going. My wife was taken two years ago. I know where she is. She knew where she was going with the Lord. And uh, we are going to have a city with foundations. It's not a floaty existence. You know what Benny Hill and his song about Ernie the Milkman called the fairy dairy land. It's not like that. At all. No, it's a city with foundations whose base, builder and maker is God. And that's what you're coming to. So praise the Lord for that. So when the Lord takes you from this world or comes back, that's what's going to happen. And uh, in fact, it, he's going to do it on earth, first of all, um, to build a kingdom here uh, in the new Jerusalem. And then the final promise as a new heaven and a new earth. But <laughs> what the text is saying when it says that Abraham went out not knowing where he was going it was talking about the here and now so Abraham knew where he came from the city of Ur, worldly city pagan city he knew the way of faith which is to repent of all his pagan thinking about origins and believe in God as creator and then to receive salvation by faith, same today, and to have um, a kingdom, a city with foundations, which is to come. We don't float around in some fairy existence afterwards. What about now? He went out not knowing where he was going. He had to rely on God each step of the way. And you and I have to rely on God each step of the way. We've been very grateful for this Zoom facility, so much so that we'll keep it on because um, it enables people to join us from a distance and those who may be perhaps unable to come to the building uh, physically for whatever reason. It's great. Praise the Lord for it. But we want to encourage you to come to the building and not rely on Zoom because it says do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Now, if you've got enforced exile, like John on Patmos, in other words, you know, distance or sickness or something prevents you from coming, well, that's fair enough, isn't it? Well, when it's fair enough, what I mean is if you can't make it, you can't make it. But uh, John longed to be back with his folk in uh, Ephesus. He didn't want to be on the Isle of Patmos, but boy, did he get a revelation there. So I would encourage you to come back. In fact, we're going back to literally to the early church's way of doing things with an agape a feast every sunday when we celebrate the lord's supper somehow or other i thought i've got a book of it at home if you're interested but it's what happened in the first couple of centuries they dropped the meal and just had the bread and the wine and missed out on the extraordinary thing that god had instituted of fellowship around a meal um, 
and taking that meal out to other people as well um, every Lord's Day. So we're reviving that practice. We believe it's a God-given practice. And um, it's got enormous opportunities. Enormous. I think it's very sad that it's been neglected for so long and reduced to just the bread and the wine and not the meal. But well, that's what the Lord's leading us to do. So we're starting next week on that. <laughs> but it's a bit of an unknown voyage, isn't it? A bit unknown, particularly in these post or, well, still COVID days. Um, we've been reminded of that already with the, the things that Mike shared with us. But we don't know what the future is. God does. But we are looking for a revival. We're looking for a time of refreshing. We're not looking to wander aimlessly around. We're not even looking back to traditions. Friends, there are certain things which no doubt we'll have to ditch. Things we've been used to. Things we've been comfortable with. Things that have given us kind of a, you know, a sort of sense of security. If that security is not in God, then it's a false one. They said they could have returned. It says it, doesn't it? They could have gone back to the city they came from. You know, we can always go back to how things were. And uh, Jesus said people like to do that. They've had the, the old wine. They don't want the new because the old is better. Let me tell you, that's not the perspective of faith. Faith is to go out, not knowing where you're going, but trusting in the Lord and being prepared for change. And not clinging on to that which is actually not worth clinging on to. The only thing worth clinging on to is God himself and the cross and the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of God. And we're going to see God willing the kingdom come. But that does mean in all of us a setting aside of certain things that we might like or prefer or whatever. So that we can see God move. Don't forget. Peter in his second letter said, add Agape to Philadelphia. Not the cheese or the city, but the thing, which is love of the brethren. That includes the sisters, of course. That's great to have that. We've got it this morning. Here we are. We love each other. We love our dear Chinese brothers and sisters. That's Philadelphia. But it's not enough. You have to add agape to it. Now, I'm not saying that means just add the breakfast on a Sunday morning, obviously. Agape is self-giving love. And the meal was called that because it expresses self-giving love. And that's for other people. Agape is undeserved love. Philadelphia is reciprocal. Other forms of love are reciprocal. Eros, erotic love, is reciprocal. But agape is not reciprocal. It's like the love of God. God so loved the world. He didn't say, I want you to love me first. And then I'll see what I can do for you. Jesus didn't say in the Last Supper, well, now, if you do your bit, I'll do my bit. We're in a marriage relationship and it's 50-50. I do my 50% if you do yours. No. You never get saved that way. Nor will you see other people saved that way. 
You don't look for 50% from other people. And if you're in a marriage, you don't do it. You give 100% yourself and your married partner will give 100%. And if they don't, well, you still give your 100%. That's agape. Agape doesn't draw on other people. It expresses the love of God out there. So Peter says in his list of virtues, you've got to add agape to your Philadelphia. And that's the key. The key for moving forward into the next phase is to have that heart, which means saying no to some of the things that you like, maybe. And yes to God. And you can be sure of this. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going, but God led him every step of the way. He lived in tents, didn't he? He was like a, what we call a Bedouin today. He was, uh, that, wasn't his, that wasn't his background. He didn't want to be like that in choice, but he obeyed. Abraham obeyed, it says, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. So we have this town and its souls as our inheritance. Are we prepared to be let out? To receive people being saved? Are we prepared to do that? We're prepared to obey. That's the key, isn't it? So when it says he went out not knowing where he's going, it's not aimless, friend. It's following the Lord. The Lord wills to save people, but he's looking for a people like us who will go at his command, and he will bless in Jesus' name.